The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Glory Glory to to you, Lord Christ. Christ. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise be to you, you, Lord Christ. Thanks for being here. Great to see each and every one of your faces. Will you please pray with me? Father, we do ask now as we come to your word that the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, of all of our hearts, be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord. For you are our rock, you are our redeemer. Father, we ask that by your spirit you would take your word and implant it deep into our hearts that we might be changed into the image of your son, Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, today's the second Sunday in what's called Eastertide, and traditionally, as you heard Brent read for us, it's the story of Thomas the Doubter. That's usually what comes on the second Sunday after Easter. And so this is probably about the sixth time or so that I've preached on this passage, <laughs> the perks of being an associate pastor. You get to preach on the Sunday after Easter. And I'm very fond of Thomas. I like Thomas a lot. But I'm also kind of thinking, what else do I say? What do I need to say? Thomas the doubter, Thomas the realist, Thomas the rationalist. What, how do I? But then this year, something else occurred to me that I hadn't noticed before. And that's Thomas the fearful. Thomas the fearful. And it occurred to me because our recent trip that our family took to Orlando Studios down in Florida, we had gone down with Aaron's father and Aaron's brother and their cousins. And it was a wonderful time running around in Orlando Studios. It's great. But we had accidentally, a couple of years ago, ruined our kids enjoyment of roller coasters. So we had gone to SeaWorld a couple of years ago and down in San Antonio. I don't know if you've been there before, but the very first thing you see when you come into the park is the kind of kid zone, a kid entrance. And there's like a little kid roller coaster that kind of goes in a loop and up and down. That was the first roller coaster that my kids experienced. And they thought that's what roller coasters were. So they loved it. The first thing they did was sprint from there to the next roller coaster, which was the Steel Eel, the tallest roller coaster at SeaWorld. And it was put in, no joke, because the management believed we need more thrilling rides at SeaWorld San Antonio. So as you can imagine, my kids got off the roller coaster bawling, (laughs) terrified, out of their minds. So then the next year, we went to Silver Dollar City in Branson. And the first roller coaster we rode was a wooden one called Outlaw Run. And our kids, you know, we said, it's fine, it's, it's, it's a good roller coaster, and they would not believe us. We said, it, it's like, it, surely it's going to go upside down, isn't it? And we said, this is a wooden roller coaster. As everybody knows, wooden roller coasters do not go upside down. 
So they believed us. They got in. They buckled in. And Outlaw Run uh, just happens to be the only wooden roller coaster in the world that goes upside down. So, <laughs> Whoops. Uh, so as you can imagine, it was hard to convince our kids in Orlando Studios to ride some of the rides. Uh, they were afraid no matter what we said to them. They didn't believe us. They wanted as much information as possible, especially Oliver, our son. He wanted to watch every video he could find of the ride before it happened. He wanted to stand outside the ride and watch it go to find out whether or not he could actually commit to riding it. And I realize this is sort of like Thomas in John 20 here. He wants all this info, the information to calm his fear. It's really similar to other statements that John has made throughout the gospel. Sorry, that Thomas has made throughout the gospel of John. In John 11, the story of Lazarus The disciples are worried that Jesus is going towards Jerusalem because they know that the Jews wanted to kill him. And when Jesus still decides to go, Thomas, out of the blue, says in verse 16, fine, let's all go so we can die with him. In other words, well, we might as all go with him, so at least we can die together. And in John 14, in the upper room, remember this story when Jesus tells the disciples he's going away to the Father. It's Thomas who says, wait, you're leaving? Where are you going? How do we know the way? Tell us the way. There's, there's things I need to know if I'm going to follow you. And John 20, verse 25 here sounds to me like my kids outside a roller coaster at Universal. I'm not getting on this roller coaster. I saw what happened. It went upside down. Thomas is saying, I saw where the nails went. I saw him die. I saw him be stabbed in the side. So unless I'm putting my fingers there and sliding my hand into his pierced side, I'm not going to believe that he's back. But it wasn't just Thomas, of course, who was afraid. All the disciples were afraid. John 20 makes that very clear here in verse 19. They were hiding out, locked doors, sequestered into a room because of their fear of the Jewish leaders in the land, that they were coming to get them. Thomas wasn't there that first time. Maybe he didn't come the first time because he was afraid. We don't know. But fear was certainly at play in the room and driving the decisions of the disciples on that day. So maybe this question for us this morning is, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of this morning? What are you locking yourself away from? What are you hiding from? Throughout the season of Eastertide, we pay attention to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, what does Christ's resurrection have to say to us in our fears? What does Jesus risen again from the dead say to us in the things that we are afraid of? So three things this morning, fear, secure, and bold, fear, secure, and bold. First fear. I wonder back to this question, how much is fear animating you, your decisions and your thinking? Here's what I've been hearing and listening to you, just conversations in our church. We are afraid of who we are, but also who we are not on the inside. Afraid that we cannot, or maybe even should not, be loved. That we have done is too shameful. That we are too inadequate, too broken. That the voice inside condemns us and traps us, so we lock ourselves away from others, and really ultimately from God, because we are too afraid for people to know who we are inside. Perhaps this, we're afraid of the world falling down around us. In war, economically, Chapman University runs a list, an index of the Americans' greatest fears where they pull Americans all over the country to sort of find out what Americans' greatest fears are. You know what the number one fear is three years in a row running at 80% of the American populace? Fear 
of corrupt government officials. 80%. That's both sides of the aisle. Are you afraid of the state turning against you? Are you afraid, if you're a Christian, particularly of being attacked for holding to historic Christian truths and historic Christian morality? Are you making yourself hide your faith behind closed doors? Or one more. Particularly, I hear this from the younger people in our congregation. I'm afraid that everything that I'm doing, my work, my effort, my dreams, it's all just meaningless. Am I just supposed to running around on a hamster wheel until I die and it's the end and there's no purpose in life? So are you hiding away from the world and its responsibilities and possibilities, sort of apathetically, mindlessly scrolling through the internet out of fear? Now, don't imagine that the disciples here in John 20 are experiencing different kinds of fear than everything that we just talked about. They're experiencing the exact same thing. They were ashamed of how they had abandoned Jesus on the night in which he was crucified. And I'm sure when Jesus shows up, their first thought is, well, he's coming back to haunt us from the dead because we left him on the night when he told us to stay with him. He wanted us to stay that night in the garden praying with him, and we kept falling asleep. And then when they came to take him, we all scattered into the wind. They were ashamed. Not only that, but it says that they were afraid that the state had won. The powers that be, they had killed Jesus. And what were they afraid of? That they were next. That's why they were in that locked room. They thought, we're about to be killed now. And of course, subtly, this thought as well. These last three years, we've been following Jesus, giving our life and our energy and our time to him, to his movement. Now he's dead. Was it all for nothing? Was it all meaningless? Was Jesus just another failed revolutionary? forgotten to the dustbin of history, and we had wasted our lives with him. But that changes here in John chapter 20. When the resurrected Jesus Christ comes in, he offers them peace. Do you notice that's what he says both times? When he comes into the disciples, the time when Thomas wasn't there in the beginning and the time after when Thomas has rejoined the disciples, the very first thing he says to them is, peace be with you. Not fear, not anger, peace. And this peace that they receive by seeing and knowing and touching the resurrected Jesus brought so much security in these disciples' lives that they're no longer hiding out in John chapter 20. They become the ones that we read about in our Acts reading. They're the very same people that were locked in that upper room are doing all the things in Acts chapter 5. They're bold. They're courageous. They're full of purpose to the very exact same people that in John 20 they were hiding out behind in locked doors. See, the resurrected Christ had met them right there in their fears, and made them secure. Secure with God on the inside, on the outside world, and restoring to them their purpose. And it can, and it should, do the very same for us. Look at Revelation, our New Testament reading here. Revelation was written, it's of course the last book of the Bible, the last book of the New Testament, was written several, to several churches who were about to be persecuted. And the revelation that God gave to John And the temptation for all these churches as they're receiving this letter, they're about to be persecuted by the state, by the Roman Empire. And the temptation would be for them to shrink back, for them to lock themselves away, for them to hide themselves. But God comes to John here and gives him this vision that uncovers for him what's really going on, giving him a vision of what's at play in the spiritual realm, a vision for the future to which the church and indeed all of history is heading. And that's what Revelation or Apocalypse 
That's what it means to uncover, to unveil, to lift the lid. And it may look like to the church in the New Testament that they were losing. It may look like that today. It may have looked to the churches in Revelation that the powerful people of the world were just going on unhindered, destroying whoever they want that might actually does make right. It may have looked to them that the God's kingdom wasn't really going anywhere, that it wasn't really growing, that it really wasn't having impact in the world, that the world itself was falling down around them. But here in Revelation, God unveils the truth to John, to the early church, and to us thousands of years later in a church when the Roman Empire is no more, to show us and remind us that everything is actually secure in the resurrected Christ. Jesus is the first thing sort of unveiled and revealed here in Revelation. Of course, he's talked about by John in these opening words, this sort of salutation to the churches that he's writing to. And then in verse 11, he shows up in the flesh to John to communicate to him. And what do we hear that John says about Jesus? In verse 5 here of Revelation chapter 1, he says that Jesus is the faithful witness. The word in Greek for witness is the word martyr, actually. So John is saying Christ is the faithful martyr. He never wavered in his mission, even in death. But he doesn't end there because death was not his end. He is also, right after that, the firstborn from the dead, which, of course, implies that others will follow after him and be others born again from the dead that those who are united to him follow after him into a resurrection. But also because he was born again from the dead, John says, he has been revealed as the real and true ruler of all the kings on the earth. And then you notice here in verse 5, after the period there on earth, to him, John sort of breaks into this little prayer of praise about Jesus. He's sort of overcome with who Jesus is and what he has just talked about, that he gives this long prayer about Jesus and what he is doing. And he says this, that goes right to the very fears that I just mentioned. Are you afraid that you are not worthy of love? Are you afraid that God has abandoned you? Certainly these churches would have felt that when they were going to be persecuted. And John said, no, Jesus is to the one who has loved you, loved you all the way through to the cross. And his resurrection confirms his power to actually free you from the internal voice of condemnation in your life, free you from sin, its power, its corruption, and its guilt. He can free you from that because he has dealt with it, forgiven it, cleansed it by his own blood spilled out upon the cross. He can free you from its power so that you and I can actually bring out the things that condemn us inside our hearts and lives, bring them into the light so they do not grow like mold in the dark parts of our souls. Because when you do, you will find not from Jesus condemnation, but forgiveness. Because Jesus' blood will free you. But also in the world outside, the tyrants of the world who crucified Jesus. What is John saying here? They lost. They lost. They couldn't kill him. And now you who are following Jesus, you are part of his kingdom. His kingdom, which cannot be erased because it's led by a king who has come back from the dead. What king or president can command a king who cannot be killed? What is the final power of the state except for the sword? Well, the sword was used on Jesus, and it didn't work. And so John says here in verse 6, his dominion or his reign is forever and ever. It is eternal. And finally, lastly, he makes us priests. What do priests do? Well, they serve God. 
You see, because Christ was resurrected, all our acts of love and service, all of our work is not meaningless acts that go nowhere and do nothing. They become a part of the living sacrifice offered to God, even in the same way that Jesus, the great high priest, offered himself upon the cross and yet still is living today. So we, in union with him, offer all that we do, as Paul talks about in Romans 12, as a living sacrifice, a sacrifice, a giving that continues, not dying, but continuing to bring life, continuing to transform the world around us. In other words, this, nothing done in Jesus' name becomes meaningless or is a dead end because he is still alive at work in and through you, wrapping your acts of love and service into his own and presenting him before God the Father. And if you belong to Jesus, you are a priest in his eternal kingdom and your gifts, you yourself, are essential to the transformation of the old broken patterns of the world that God is doing away with. This world that gets continually shaken down again and again and falls apart because it's old. It's going away. It's inhabited with evil. And God is shaking that down because he's always rebuilding it into a new world of the life-giving reality of the resurrected Jesus. And you share in that rebuilding. See, Christ's resurrection is the secure ground to deal with all our fears on the inside, on the outside, regarding our purposes. And as John hears from Jesus here in verse 17 of Revelation chapter 1, what does Jesus say? Fear not. Do not fear. You can be bold. What can man do to you? What could man do to Jesus? Notice in Acts 5 here how all the disciples ground their courageous acts in Acts chapter 5. They say to these Jewish leaders who want to kill them, we must obey God rather than man in verse 29. And then in verse 30, why? The very first thing they give for why they must obey God instead of them, it says, because God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. In other words, they are saying to these Jewish leaders who want to kill them, you can't control us. The game is over. A winner has been declared. This Jesus has been exalted by God. Death will not win and does not win. And let's see what happens. See what happens when the powers of this world hear that message. What do the Jewish leaders do in verse 33 here? Right in the middle of your Acts reading, they are enraged. They're enraged. They want to kill these disciples. They hate the idea that they have lost and that their power is waning. So they flex their power at the disciples. They beat them. They command them. Do not speak of this. Do not open your lips. Do not talk to people about Jesus, but it doesn't take. It doesn't take. The spell is broken. Verse 41, the disciples are rejoicing to be seen as faithful witnesses, as faithful martyrs, just like their leader. In verse 42, it says every day, that is the very next day after having been beaten, they go out and just keep telling people about Jesus, that in him real forgiveness for sins can be found. That real restoration with the God of the universe can be had in Jesus. That he is the real king, not Caesar and not Herod. That he is the actual purpose and meaning of the world and of your life and of mine. And they do this not in fear, not in anger, not in self-righteous vitriol, but in joyful proclamation. And I know that many of you here this morning may be struggling with 
the truth of Jesus' resurrection? Did it actually happen? Did he really come back from the dead? And I know there, there are many proofs and examples and arguments that can be made that I have made preaching about Thomas in years before in order to answer the doubts that I carry, that you carry, that all of us deal with. But I think the most potent thing to consider is this. All these disciples, they had seen Jesus crucified. They were all terrified. They were hiding out. But something completely changed these men in that room in John 20. They left that locked room. They left where they were hiding, and they never went back. They became bold even in the very face of death itself. And all of them, except John, who wrote the Revelation, John himself was exiled to Patmos for continuing to tell people about Jesus. But all the other disciples, they themselves became martyrs. They were crucified or killed just like Jesus. What changed them to become people with this kind of boldness and conviction? Couldn't be that they made it up and that they lied. It had to be that they had met the resurrected Jesus in that room. And they had become secure in him. They had seen what happened after Jesus had died and he was returned to life. And they knew that that would be true of them as well. That death and fear no longer had to control and demand their attention and could destroy them. They could become bold. The spell that death and sin had had over their life was snapped. One of our favorite things in Orlando was Harry Potter world. I don't know if you've been there, but it's, it's truly, I don't even know how to explain it to you. It is amazing. The detail that they put into each of the places in Diagon Alley and then the Hogwarts area, I mean, the cobblestones, the house is all being a little off tilt and all, it's, it's, it is truly, it is a magical place. I mean, even the restrooms inside, you know, which are for like 50 people are all designed as if you're still in this world of Harry Potter. And, but it reminds me being there and seeing the magic of Harry Potter, something because all the sets are designed like the movies, the images from the movies. It reminded me of one particular irritating fact that I have between the difference between the movies and the books. And something that I've actually said in a Thomas sermon before, in a different year. But there's a great discrepancy between what happens at the very end of the books and what happens at the end of the movies. In the movies, the last movie, and because of what happened in the last service, if you've not, you know, spoiler alert and all of that, um, Bryn Baker was sitting over here with her hands in her ears the whole time. And Brent wrote on the paper, he's like, I'll tell you when he's done. But in the movies, Harry goes and offers himself as a martyr to Voldemort and he's killed. And then Harry is resurrected of sorts. But then the rest of the movie is a battle in which Harry and Voldemort fly all over Hogwarts and they're fighting and their faces are interchanging. And it's sort of like the director is saying, okay, the battle happened. Harry gave his life, but then he was came back to life. And, but now here's the real battle, Harry versus Voldemort. Who's really going to win? Something has to be done. That is such crock. That is not at all what should be going on in the books every year from one through seven, every year, Harry goes through a death and a resurrection. He figuratively descends and dies and is figuratively raised up into a different and new Harry for the next year, all in preparation for the final book when Harry goes and offers himself to Voldemort and dies a martyr's death. But of course he returns. But when he does in the books, the power of Voldemort, it's broken. It's done. The spell of fear and power that Voldemort had over everyone, it was, it's 
not potent anymore. His magical power is disintegrating. At one point, Harry casts a, or Voldemort casts a spell over all of Harry's followers to make them be silent, but he doesn't want to hear them speak, and yet Harry's friends just keep talking and shouting, and the spell keeps falling apart and breaking, and then it's because Harry is alive again. The resurrection had happened. A few battles take place, but in the books, it's clear. It's over. There is no question about who is going to win. And Harry and his friends are bold and courageous and fearless because Voldemort had given Harry his best shot. Not only that, he'd landed it, but it didn't take. The evil tyrant had failed. My friends, Harry Potter is just rhyming with the deepest truths of the world. Christ has died. The faithful death of a martyr dying for his world, dying for his friends under the hand of evil and under the weight of sin upon the cross, but he rose again. And the evil powers of this world, the power of sin, they lost. The spell was broken. You can be bold. Yes, there are still battles to be fought. Yes, suffering is still present and past and will be future because the old powers are enraged and they do not like giving up their power. But the game is over. The real war has already been won. And you can be bold coming out from behind locked doors. You can reveal everything going on, going on inside in your life to others. You can confess it. You can admit your need for forgiveness, God's forgiveness. You can see the old patterns of your life brought to death so that new patterns life-giving patterns might be born in your life. You can be bold to speak the truth of the resurrected Christ because you belong to the king above all kings, above all kingdoms. You can be bold in your purposes. What you do matters. So get doing it. It needs to be done. The faithful witness has gone before you through death. Spell is broken. You can become a faithful witness after him. Just as Jesus says to John in Revelation chapter 1, fear not. He is the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and Omega. All things find their reality in him. He is the living one. All life is ultimately found in him. He died, but behold, he is alive forevermore. And he has bought with his life and in his resurrection the keys, the ownership of death sin and hell. They can't control you anymore. He has taken them and wrested power from them. You are secure in him. Amen. Father, we do pray that you would enable us as men and women made in your image and redeemed through your son, Jesus, to have the boldness of your disciples in Acts chapter five, to obey you rather than others, rather than men, We would have the courage to know that the kingdom that you have ushered us into is an eternal kingdom, is won by you, that we are secure in your son, Jesus, the resurrected one, because you are the one who is and who was and who is to come. You are the almighty. So give us the courage and boldness to follow after you. In Christ's name, amen.